0: Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today, we'll be discussing finding our dharma, our life purpose, and whether difficulties in life might actually help us in this search and help us to step forward as our best selves. I'm joined today by Stephen Cope. Stephen Cope is the founder and former director of the Kripalu Institute for Extraordinary Living. He is a best-selling author and scholar who specializes in the relationship between the Eastern contemplative traditions and Western depth psychology, and is well known in the field, in the world of contemplative practice as a teacher who combines intellectual rigor With the powerful direct practices of hatha yoga and meditation you can find out more about stephen at his website stephencope.com and as stephen is s-t-e-p-h-e-n stephencope.com can also follow him on instagram and facebook welcome to the yoga hour stephen i'm delighted to be able to talk with you today and discuss your new book the dharma in difficult times finding your calling in times of loss, change, struggle, and doubt.
1: Thank you, Laurel, it's great to be back. It's good to see you, yeah.
0: Before we dive into our dialogue about finding our Dharma in difficult times, let's start, let's start as we mean to go on. Let's start Mm -hmm. with a yoga moment, a moment of present moment awareness. Oh, Now, whatever you're doing, just bring your attention to your body in space. Just feel your body if you're standing or sitting, walking, driving. Just notice your body in space. And in particular, feel those surfaces that are supporting your weight. Where are your feet? How do they meet the floor? What part of your weight is supported in the chair if you're sitting? And now, just bring your attention to your breath. Just noticing as you take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale, and exhale. On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling how that air has been warmed as it passes through our lungs. Just staying with the breath continuing to notice every inhale and exhale here's something to contemplate a teaching from the founder and spiritual director of the yoga hour yogacharya o'brien from her book living for the sake of the soul the spiritually dedicated life is one where we wrestle like jacob with the angel to receive the blessing in all that is and bring it forth. We actively participate in our own destiny and that of our awakening world. We are not alone. The Divine Presence responds to our need and comes in a time of darkness and despair with saving grace. This grace reveals the way of awakening from darkness to light, ignorance to bliss bondage to freedom be a spiritual warrior if you are struggling with a situation take charge turn it around demand a blessing instead be a spiritual warrior if you are struggling with a situation take charge turn it around demand a blessing instead Aum. Once again, Stephen Cope, I'm delighted to have you join me again on the Yoga Hour. You had mentioned uh, yourself that, um, that you have done some uh, Programs with us in the past, and people can access those by putting your name into the um, search uh, bar um, when you have the Yoga Hour up. I think there's a, probably I think three or four episodes with you, and they're all excellent. <laughs> so this book today that we're discussing, your new book, "The Dharma: uh, The Great uh, <laughs> the Dharma in Difficult Times," um, it's a second book you've written about Dharma. Your first being the great work of your life. So, what was your inspiration to write this second book? about dharma
1: you know um it's a great question uh i had a situation so i'll be really honest about this one i um i'm in relationship with a lot of in my in my role at kripalu uh which is the largest yoga center in in america etc i have relationships with a lot of major organizations and I came into a situation where I was unfairly treated in relationship with one of these big organizations, and it was it was rather shocking and mm. very upsetting. Yeah, um, and I realized I have had such a privileged life that the experience of being treated unfairly was rather new to me. Mm grossly unfairly and i realized this happens to everybody all the time the Mm -hmm. world is unfair so it got me thinking about great people and great lives who've had to overcome great suffering and in the process realize their full calling their, their true calling their full dharma um and so it was really that that bump in the road that caused me to think about all of these issues. And then paradoxically COVID came along. So I ended up really writing most of this book during COVID when the whole world was, was suffering. Mm -hmm. So it it was not meant to be quite this timely, but the Dharma in difficult times is, is now what we've got. Right.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. For listeners who aren't familiar with the Sanskrit word Dharma, how do you define it for your students? How does and how does our Dharma call us to action?
1: Yeah, Dharma is one of those great Sanskrit words that's highly compressed. You know, you'll often hear it meaning truth, path, law, teaching. But in the context of the Bhagavad Gita, which is what I'm teaching about in this book, it always means sacred duty or true calling, true vocation. Mm-hmm dharma itself the word dharma is based on the the root dhr the three-letter root in sanskrit which means to hold together and the whole notion goes all the way back to vedic times and the story of indra and indra's net uh, which uh indra of course was the great god of the vedic pantheon and he lived on mount miru as these gods do and it was said that he'd cast a vast net over the entire universe from Mount Meru, and that at the warp and woof strand of each one of these, um, each part of this this web, was a gem, was a jewel. Mm-hmm. That jewel is an individual soul, and it's that jewel's job to hold together that part of the web. Mm-hmm. That's our dharma: hold to hold together. We're only called to hold together our part, but it's essential that we do that. And in doing it, um in doing it, support the common good, support the whole. Um and I, I just love that story because it's got all the paradox of Indian spirituality, the the you know, the connection between the particular and the universal. Mm -hmm. um and and as i write i write about thoreau in this book who you know who strongly believed in this connection between our individual actions right here and now on the earth and the way in which they affect the whole field Mm -hmm. so uh, that was um i'm i'm very drawn by this idea of dharma i think it's something we in the west need to look at closely
0: I'm so glad you brought up that story about Indra's net, you know, because I, I just I don't know, there's something about it that's just so appealing to me. You know, this idea that at every single point at which there's a cross, as you said, yeah. of the, you know, the, the fibers, there's uh-huh. a jewel. And, yeah. and that's each one of us. And that's our, you know, our role, our, you know, our highest duty. Um, and if we don't do it, you know, it, it's like the net is 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 weaker. You know, at that at that point, there's like nobody else who can do that job. And we could go on and on about this. Um, yeah. You know, the the idea that even if you don't do it well, it's 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 more important to do what you're supposed to do than that's to right. do what you do well. Even if you know, even if you do it well, that's okay. Do this other thing, even if you can't do it as well, because that's your job. That's your dharma.
1: That's right. Krishna says it's better to fail at your own dharma. Than to succeed at the dharma of another. Yeah. So this whole notion of um, of the connection between our individual lives and the whole field yeah. is something that that the yoga traditions really understand.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that's so great that you brought that up. I love that. In the book you you refer to what psychologists call disorienting dilemmas. I had not heard this term before before reading your book but I I was very struck by it. Disorienting dilemmas are those events that so totally turn our lives upside down that as you write, quote all we can do for a while is sit and stare at a wall. <laughs> and certainly, I think I've had those kind of, you know, dilemmas. And I I can't, I mean, I think they're part of, you know, humanity. Would you say more about disorienting dilemmas and how these events, when we confront them rather than run from them, may point us in the direction of our dharma?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a disorienting dilemma that caused me to write this book. So the experience with this large institution, and I didn't know, first of all, I was shocked. It was so grossly unfair, and I wasn't sure whether to go to war or whether to let it go. I didn't know what to do, and so I I literally sat and stared at the wall for a while, like weeks before I decided how to take action, Um, and of course- That's exactly the position we find Arjuna in at the beginning of the Bhagavad Gita. He's literally on the floor of his chariot because he's confronted with a dilemma that he can't solve. He says, oh, Krishna, conflicting sacred duties confound my mind, conflicting sacred duties. So the disorienting dilemma at some point happens to all of us when the world confronts us with a fact. And a reality that doesn't fit our narrative, our, our worldview. And, you know, in, in Buddhism, for example, there is something called the four holy messengers. These are four life experiences that provoke um, this disorientation. And of course they're uh, old age suffering, death and the confrontation with the holy person. Those are the four holy messengers. So, when I had, here's the disorienting dilemma, when my best friend died when I was just 30 years old, mm. it shook me to the bones. It, made, it forced me to look at my view of reality and to see that life is so ephemeral. Everything is always changing. In, in the Buddhist tradition, there, these are called the three marks of existence, anicca, anatta, and dukkha, or um, impermanence, no self, and, and suffering. And the confrontation with radical impermanence in the sense of a loss, and everybody listening has had one of these, forces you to look again at your understanding of permanence and impermanence. And it, it forces you to adjust your view of the world um, just in the same way in which we will have some circumstances which, um, which confront us with the fact that we're actually not in charge of the world right mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. this is anatta which in buddhism is usually said is no self but it really means we're part of a big web of of interaction and we're not in charge of it mm-hmm. um so the the disorienting dilemma leads us to refine our view of the world and maybe seek a view a spiritual view perhaps that encompasses a bigger part of the picture Mm -hmm. right
0: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah no absolutely you've already mentioned that um you focus a lot on the bhagavad-gita in in your book Mm. and this is bhagavad-gita for those listeners who aren't familiar with it it's an ancient uh hindu scripture Um, And I I love the way you talk about it. It's one of the few books that actually addresses how to deal with what we've just been talking about, these disorienting dilemmas. So would you share a little bit more about the Gita and how it helps us in confronting these difficult times in our lives?
1: Yeah, honestly, Laurel, there are very few books in the spiritual literature of the world that are more um, dramatically personal for us that we need more than this particular tale and of course it's the tale of arjuna who's the great warrior in the in the ancient kingdom of of kuru the greatest archer in the kingdom and his friend krishna who turns out to be an avatar of god avatar means literally means crossing over downward that's when god becomes incarnate in a human life so krishna and arjuna um Krishna is seen to be Arjuna's charioteer. This is one of the great stories that every Indian um knows. It's on every temple. It's all over India. It's not an esoteric scripture. It's a story about this one man's confrontation with his duty in the face of this world, and, and their world was on fire just like ours was, is there was war. um The 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 kingship of the kingdom had been usurped by an evil person. And so Arjuna is left to wonder, in the face of the breakdown of society, what's my duty? Yeah. What am I called to? And I, I believe that we're all, right now, at this point in history, asking ourselves that question. Mm-hmm. What in the world could my duty be yeah. in the face of growing autocracy in the face of global warming in the face of all of it COVID. what's my own individual duty and this is the question that arjuna asked to his friend krishna who turns out to be super wise (laughs) because he's got um, (laughs) he's an incarnation of god so they they talk through the night on the night before this great battle and in the process arjuna comes to see the world in an entirely new way he, he becomes enlightened to a world uh, that he hadn't previously understood mm-hmm. and so this is the bhagavad-gita it, it means literally it means the song of god mm-hmm. and it's um it's a tale for the ages really
0: yeah i i love actually the beginning of the book Uh, which starts with the despondency of Arjuna, you know, where he's on this battlefield, as you said, he has his, he's an archer, he has his bow and he's just like so overwhelmed. He just like throws down his bow and collapses, you know, on the ground. Like I can't go on, you know, and then the whole rest of the book is kind of him pulling himself together and stepping forward into his, into his role
1: Exactly right, Laurel. His his dilemma is between his dharma, that is his sacred duty, and keep in mind that he's a warrior. He's of the warrior caste. So it is his duty to fight in a just war. And this is a just war. And on the other side, if he participates in the war, he will likely kill some of his own kin who are on the other side of the war, um, of the battle. Mm -hmm. And He's completely undone by this dilemma. What should I do, Krishna? Mm -hmm. And he he falls to the floor of his chariot and says, conflicting sacred duties confound my mind. Mm -hmm. Arjun at the beginning of the tale is caught up in doubt. So doubt is seen in this text as the central affliction of the person of action. So if you want to be a person of action and you're mired in doubt, You, like Arjuna, are going to be on the floor of your chariot because you're split into, should I do this or should I do this? Mm -hmm. There we have it. At the very beginning of the book, Arjuna says, I'm overwhelmed by doubt. The very last paragraph of the book, he says, oh, Krishna, my doubt has been dispelled. Okay, how does that happen, (laughs) right? Right. How does that happen?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So the other thread in addition to the bhagavad-gita that you really explore that kind of underlines uh the rest of the book is um the fight for civil rights yeah Um, it's a really strong theme you tell the stories of eight individuals um that you you choose to illustrate uh some lessons from the bhagavad-gita which we'll talk about in a minute but Mm -hmm. could you say a little bit more about your choice of civil rights and especially yes. the struggle for African-American civil rights as a focus in the stories that you share.
1: I will, because, look, this is a disorienting dilemma that we all share. Right. Our, our um, founding documents say all men are created equal. And yet we've lived throughout our entire 200X year history with this dilemma of all men are created equal. Okay, well, where's women in there? We dealt with that in the, <laughs> in the amendment, the 21st, I think it was. But are all men really, all human beings seen as equal? No, because we have a structurally racist society in so many ways. Um, and so the dilemma that we all live with, the, the big one in the United States, is one that I think has to be, we have to, all of us have to wrestle with this. Um, and uh that's a, B, the reason I I chose one disorienting dilemma. Every character in this book, all eight, are faced with the dilemma of racism and um in in profound inequality. And each one of them wrestles with it in a different way. Right? Some of them go to war, some of them are pacifists. Uh, some of them, like Marian Anderson, use their gifts to transcend this. So there are eight different versions of how Arjuna, our interior Arjuna, caught in a disorienting dilemma, might actually act in a way for the good of soul and the good of the good of our souls and the good of and the common good as well. Because I'm very interested in going back to Indra's net, the way in which our individual dharmas are connected to the good of the whole and this is one of the most important things about the gita basically krishna says you cannot have authentic personal fulfillment unless you're also fulfilling your calling to the common good those two intersect and it's right at the intersection of your personal fulfillment and the common good that you find this this magic thing called dharma mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. so the book is divided into four parts and each part is focused on one of the four lessons from the bhagavad-gita in how to confront these difficult times um And, uh, you have identified sort of Krishna's four lessons for tough times. (laughs) I like the way you said that. (laughs) The first lesson you offer is take refuge in me. And your example for that, that, uh, lesson is the life of Mahatma Gandhi as an example of this strategy. So how did Gandhi's life and actions point to the idea of finding Dharma in difficult times? So
1: most of what we know about Gandhi is about his political activism. But it turns out that Gandhi saw himself differently. He thought his whole life was about the search for God. And he used the Bhagavad Gita as his central text in this search. So that when he confronted difficult realities in the world, he turned to the Bhagavad Gita. and And because the Bhagavad Gita is a theistic text in the sense that there is uh, a God, there is yeah. God, there is this higher power. Um, Gandhi, taught by the Gita, always felt that his job, one, was taking refuge in the wisdom of God and the, the spirit and letting his actions flow from there. Yeah. So this, the story I tell in the in the first chapter of the book is, when Gandhi arrives back to India after he's been in South Africa for twenty years, everybody, Nehru and the rest of them all want him to get to work with his political activism for which he's become famous and Gandhi says no that's not that's not what I'm about. I'm going to found an ashram and I'm going to go into retreat and I'm going to pray right mm-hmm. I don't know what to do with this mess of india it's it's a nightmare it's much bigger than the problems I tried to solve in south africa and so here you have gandhi paradoxically and throughout his career all the time in the most difficult times gandhi took refuge in his ashram which for those of you don't know is like a, a monastery in his prayer life in his meditation life he listened for the still small voice within to guide him and gandhi was famous for saying the only tyrant I allow in my life is a still small voice within. Mm. He believed in living a life of such purity, really, and dedication to God that he let his life be guided in every step. So he would withdraw for months at a time Mm. when India was on the verge of chaos. And everybody was like, where? What the heck? What are you doing? (laughs) I'm praying, right? And out of this prayer life came these amazing, um, strategies, which weren't his, but were essentially higher powers, were essentially God's. Right. So right. that whole episode of the march to, to the sea to make salt, which was the beginning, the first act of civil disobedience nationally came out of three or four months of prayer. And it was brilliant. It was brilliant to break the back of the british raj uh and their control over india Mm
0: -hmm.
1: i mean i love gandhi i just this was a man who wasn't perfect like i say in the book he had a huge temper he was way not perfect but he where he was perfect was in listening to his guidance Mm -hmm. in it um as he would say, putting on the whole armor of God that is put on all of his spiritual practices. And he was very pluralistic about it. So he dipped into Christianity. He read Tolstoy. He read Mm. the philosophers. He loved the Bhagavad Gita. He loved the Sermon on the Mount. Bring it on. Whatever will help me toward wisdom is what I want. That's what Gandhi said. And, And so you have the life of Gandhi. And he would he would say, I was not the doer of that life. That was mm-hmm. God.
0: On page twenty-four of the book, you outline the spiritual credo that Gandhi refined, which reflects the wisdom of the Bhagavad Gita. Could you give a, a summary of sure. the spiritual credo?
1: Yeah. I've got the book right here. I'm gonna to have to refer to it. So um Listen to this and you'll see how remarkably similar it is to Martin Luther King Jr.'s credo. Mm-hmm. Almost identical. And this is not a mistake because King considered himself a student of, of Gandhi. So um, I think there's six of these. The first is all human beings are made in the image and likeness of God.
0: Mm-hmm. All that's, human
1: beings. All human beings, every human being. And that's, that's a constant in all the great wisdom traditions of the world, made in the image and likeness. In in the yoga tradition, in Hinduism, Atman and Brahman are the same, mm-hmm. the, the individual soul and the um and and Brahman, God. Second, all human beings are equal members of one human family. Equal members. He lived in an in India where there was this caste system that was so rigid. And he insisted on including everybody, even the lowest caste, women, Hindus, Muslims, Christians, you name it, everybody equal, he lived that. Third, truth is one, paths are many. Again, very pluralistic. Wary of doctrine and dogma. Gandhi was an empiricist, like most yogis are. He was about, show me the money, show me the truth. What's What's empirically the truth here? He wasn't about defending doctrines and dogmas. He was about figuring out how the world worked and making it the best world he possibly could. So wary of doctrine and dogma. Um, the high value on serving the common good that we've already spoken about and the notion that only love can overcome hate. And, you know, we, we make... Lip service to that in our culture and in our Christian culture say, but Gandhi really lived it only the Buddha said only love is stronger than hate love can pull out the roots of hate mm-hmm. whereas hate cannot pull out the roots of love mm-hmm. and so Gandhi decided if he's going to live in truth, he's going to live in love and um, and he made it the back the backbone of his Sachagraha approach, right. and of course, it's it's changed the world. And we see it, you know. I tried to trace the lineage of the Gita from Gandhi all the way through Thoreau, through some more contemporary peoples, through Jim Crow, Marian Anderson, for example, and then all the way up to Martin Luther King, uh, Jr. And um, you can see the way in which love. Is at the center of the lives of all of those people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: yes i was very struck by that last uh principle that you write
1: mm-hmm.
0: um because it seems like it is such a key right now to where we are oh, I, and you in your book you write i'm just going to read which you said in a little bit different words but i, I want to kind of underline it by by reading it again gandhi mm-hmm. believed fervently that only love can overcome hate. The Buddha had said this 2,000 years earlier. Love can overcome hate, he taught, but hate can never overcome love. Gandhi believed that if one consistently acts with love, he will slowly but surely bend the moral arc of the universe. I just. I was just so struck by that line. Gandhi believed that if one consistently acts with love, he will slowly but surely bend the moral arc of the universe. Again, I just feel like we all need that so much right now because they're so. They're, that's not what we're seeing in not front of us.
1: Seeing. And, you know, the Eastern contemplative traditions, both yoga and Buddhism, have a much deeper understanding of love. What is love? Mm -hmm. And in in both of those great traditions, love is translated as metta or mitri, which means friendliness toward all beings or goodwill. Mm -hmm. The essence of love is not as we've made it up in the West to be attachment, attached love, craving, clinging, grasping. That's actually the root of suffering. Mm -hmm. Love is really about um, goodwill, the heart, the open heart that wishes well for all human beings. Um, And um, this is very different than our Western view of what love is. It's it's not stained by attachment and grasping. It's this authentic, this is genuine wishing well for all beings. And that comes from, you know, you'll know that in the yoga texts, in the yoga sutra, for example, for the very end of the practice comes this profound realization called Samapati or coalescence, which, which is, uh, as it says in the Yoga Sutra, all human beings, all sentient beings are made of the same stuff. Mm-hmm. That is to say, you and I and everybody listening in every way that really matters is made of the same stuff. We're all one family. We know one another. I know what it feels like to suffer. I know what greed, hatred, and delusion are because we're all bound up in those. Um, so once you realize that all beings are made of the same stuff, you begin to see all of us as one family. And naturally, what rises up is goodwill. Mm-hmm. May, you know, um, Laurel, may you be happy may you be healthy you're my sister may you be, be at ease in this life you're my fellow human being so these these traditions really understood what love really is and its power
0: right. yeah absolutely just take a moment to remind listeners i'm dr laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the yoga hour today i'm here with stephen cope the author of the book we're discussing today the dharma in difficult times mm-hmm. you can check out uh, stephen's books and teachings at his website stephencope.com and stephen is s-t-e-p-h-e-n so stephencope.com we will have the link to his website on our website theyogahour.com we welcome your comments and questions you can contact us via that website the where you can also sign up for our mailing list so Stephen, as we mentioned you you chose um eight people to focus on with the book <clears throat> underlying underlining <clears throat> or outlining you know giving this you know uh filling in these four principles that you took so we've been talking about the first one you know about taking refuge um and then the um next one um, the next lesson from the bhagavad-gita that you discuss is peer carefully into the chaos for the sure signs of dharma and for this one you tell the story of uh, author harriet beecher stowe who wrote uncle tom's cabin so how did you choose harriet beecher stowe to exemplify finding the dharma in difficult times
1: so Interestingly, Harriet Beecher Stowe lived right in the center of uh, the pre-Civil War America. She lived in Cincinnati, right on the Ohio River, which was the dividing line between slave and free. Her family were devout Christians and abolitionists, so they were involved in the struggle from the beginning. Um, And Harriet uh was a, a creature of authentic faith in in this case in the Christian tradition, but she like Gandhi was very pluralist. And in this book I tell the story of Harriet Beecher Stowe's loss of her son Charlie when he was two years old to to um uh to uh what am I trying to say um, I'm, I'm forgetting the disease <laughs> anyway. Cholera to cholera, which was widespread in those days. Yeah. Um, she was completely undone by the loss of her almost. I want to say favorite child. This was a late in life child. She adored this little boy, mm-hmm. Charlie. And there are pictures of them. You can see online of his body dead. And they used to do that in in the in that era. They would take a still. Um, he looks alive, sleeping, but he's actually adorable. She was completely devastated and her faith in God pushed her to find some redemption in the suffering that she experienced, some way of making sense of it. You know, I call it the gift in the wound. Look for the gift in the wound. There is a gift in every wound that we can use to transform the suffering into redemption, essentially. And Harriet, living as she did in Cincinnati, realized that almost on a daily basis, she would see slave sales, slave auctions, where they're splitting up families and babies are torn from mother's arms. And she began to identify with the African-American mothers, with the black mothers whose babies were torn away from them. Not by death, but by the, the the evil slave auctioneer, and this aroused in her such compassion. Mm-hmm. You know the the definition of compassion, Karuna, is when the open heart comes close to suffering. Mm-hmm. It 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 quivers. It reverberates with the suffering. She felt the suffering of those black mothers, and she was determined to do something about it. Yeah. So. She wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. She literally channeled it. And um, it it was meant to arouse the passion and the furor and the fervor of an America that did not want to look at the suffering of enslavement in those days. This novel became the best-selling novel of the 19th century, possibly the 20th, I'm not sure. Definitely second only to the Bible. It sold hundreds of thousands of copies right away, both here in America and in Britain, which was very abolitionist in those days. It literally caused the North, the, the silent majority in the North, to rise up against slavery. And in that way, when when Harry Beecher Stowe met Lincoln at the White House, he said, so you're the little woman who started this big war. Yeah. and. You know, we don't know if that story is apocryphal, but it was very largely her writing that 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 pulled the heartstrings and that revealed the true nature and savagery of slavery mm-hmm. to a North that, by and large, did not want to shake things up. Right. Um, and then she went on to write much more radical books. She gets a really bad rap, by the way. Because Uncle Tom is seen as being the subservient character. <clears throat> it, Uncle Tom is not the only character in the book. Liza, there, there are many other characters, but she goes on to write much more radical stuff. She writes a, a novel called Dread, which is about a kind of revolutionary black man. <clears throat> um, but the key point in the chapter is find the gift in the wound. Mm-hmm. What what in the wound that you have? So I talked about the wound that I had of feeling unfairly treated. And the gift in that wound for me was this book. This mm-hmm. book came out of that wound. I transformed it yeah. into a book. Yeah. You know, each one of us has these major experiences of suffering in life. Peer, I say peer into it. Where in there? Is the gem of possibility of Mm -hmm. transformation. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, that's what Krishna invites us to do as well. Mm -hmm. Look for your dharma. He says, it's your dharma, look to your dharma to save you. Mm -hmm. When you find that calling, as as Harry Beecher Stowe did, it saves your soul in some mysterious way. Mm -hmm. And she always felt that way. She felt saved by that book
0: such a great there's a great story and such a great illustration so so far we've talked about Gandhi and taking refuge and now Harriet Beecher Stowe and and um look for the gift in the wound and the third lesson from the Gita that you discuss is understand that true personal fulfillment and the common good always arise together and you illustrate this lesson by telling the story of Sojourner Truth as an example of someone who worked toward the common good of many people. So would Hmm. you tell us how you came to choose Sojourner Truth's story as an example of the principle that you're talking about here about um, how true personal fulfillment and the common good always arise together?
1: Sure. Um, I've always loved Sojourner Truth and most people don't know this, but there was plenty of slavery in the pre-Civil War North. There were 30,000 enslaved people here in my state of New York, living fairly nearby where I live. In fact, Sojourner Truth was, was born near here. Wow. Um, Sojourner Truth was one of those great self-emancipated slaves. She walked away from her master, quote unquote, at the age of 29, carrying her child in arms. And she had felt the most degrading aspects of of slavery, you know the whip the the rapes the the whole thing and she felt called by the holy spirit she she got very involved in Pentecostalism, and for those of you who don't know the the essence of of the Pentecostal is the the coming down from heaven of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, um, it, you know, comes to reside in each one of us. And um, Sojourner Truth felt strongly. Okay, let's go back a little bit. So there was a strong tradition of spirituality in the enslaved African-American community in America. Very often this was, um, nurtured by the mother. So in this case, Sojourner Truth, um, had a mother who was profoundly spiritual and helped her to set up her little hideaway in the woods where she would go and pray, taught her to pray, taught her the scriptures. Actually, Sojourner Truth knew more scripture by heart than almost any clergyman, which made her fantastic on the stump because She'd call these these clergymen little men in black because they were all decked out in black, and they would they would bring up some scriptural argument, and she would just completely mow them down in public because she knew her Bible, and she was also a person of, of profound prayer. Um, so she decided she was going to let her life be led by the Holy Spirit,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: and her. Her role was to show people and very often physically when she showed the scars on her back mm. to, um, embody in a way the suffering of her race, which she always said her, her race. Right. And to stand up in front of crowds of very often angry men or angry whites or whatever. And to, to be so present with her story and her story of suffering that it changed hearts and minds. Mm. And so right there, her her dharma was to become a preacher and she became one of the greatest itinerant preachers of the, of the 19th century, um, to become a preacher that changed hearts and minds for the good of the whole. She had this radical trust in the Holy Spirit. So very often when she was going from town to town, she was in her buckboard with her horse she would just let the rains go, and she'd say, okay, God, you drive. Mm-hmm. And wherever she ended up, in whatever little little village, she'd set up her wagon with her signs, have a little revival meeting, give a talk in the town church. It was up to God where she ended up. And she went all over the East Coast. She went all through the Midwest. Wow. Changing hearts and minds with her powerful preaching. She sang some of her sermons she had a beautiful voice so she sang and she chanted and they're just (laughs) epic stories about how she changed these communities by her very presence and she would say it wasn't her it was the spirit of god it was the spirit moving through her that enlivened her and of course this is a basic pentecostal notion and so she like gandhi was very pluralist but also listen to the spirit to the inner voice and um let it direct her life mm-hmm. and she had a very powerful life she lived to be an old lady um and one who was deeply admired by everyone from Frederick Douglass to, to Abraham Lincoln.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you use her as an example of this principle of how personal fulfillment and common good arise together is that she was following her Dharma and obviously it was, you know, fulfilling to her. And then also, obviously she was doing all this amazing, you know, work of really changing people's changing people's perceptions.
1: Exactly. So to, to make the point clear for folks, this is the point where her own gifts, her gifts for preaching, her gifts of knowledge of the Bible, her gifts for singing, all of her gifts overlapped with the need of the time that she felt so profoundly. So her personal fulfillment in fulfilling all of those gifts and letting them come to complete fruition overlapped at this one spot, which was um, the the freeing of the American slave. Mm -hmm. And... Um, She brought herself into service for the common good. She brought all of her gifts. And that's what all of us have to do. That's why I love the story of Indra's net because what right at the intersection there, what part of the web are we holding together? So for example, I'm a writer. That's my gift, right? Um, I grew up in a family of writers. I learned how to write. So, what can i do well i need to bring my own small set of gifts to the the major calling of the time and one of the major callings of our time is that we've as a result of what happened with george floyd and and covid we've ripped the mask off the amount of structural racism that really does exist here in our country and this was one of the calls of the times. It's the one that I was feeling deeply when I wrote the book, and it's not each chapter is meant to exemplify one of the one of the ways in which we can engage this particular dilemma. And they're very different, very different creatures. Like Marian Anderson and Sojourner Truth were both black women, but they had a very different way of confronting the dilemmas of racism almost polar opposite
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i wish we had time to talk about everybody you know in the book because i think all of the stories are are really fantastic so we've said there are four principles we've talked about three so far we've talked about taking refuge we've talked about uh, looking for the gift in the wound we've talked about in sojourner uh, truth how personal fulfillment and common good always arise together and then the fourth lesson provided by Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita is always remember that you are not the doer.
1: Mm.
0: And you share the story of people that I wasn't familiar with, Jonathan Daniels and Ruby Sales. So would you share a bit of their story and how it exemplifies the idea of, of navigating through difficult times and identifying one's dharma?
1: Yeah, so... um This whole notion of not the doer is very central to the Bhagavad Gita. And the notion is that if you're living the the tenets of the Gita, and in, in my first book on the Gita, I wrote about what I call the four pillars of the doctrine of inaction and action, which are, number one, discern your dharma, what's your calling in the world. Number two, do it full out. This is called the doctrine of unified action. Bring everything you've got Everything you've got to the table of your Dharma. Number three, let go of the fruits, let go of the outcome. As we've said, Krishna said, better to fail. We don't even know what success is. right? So are you doing your Dharma full out? That's the question. Not are you succeeding in the eyes of the world? That's irrelevant. And then fourth, turn it over to the God of your understanding or turn it over to something bigger than yourself. Yeah. Um. When you live that way over time, according to Gandhi and all the people in the book who've lived that way, over time you begin to hear this still small voice. Mm-hmm. It it comes into focus more and more deeply until you're really letting it guide you through life. And there's the sense that you are no longer the doer. Mm-hmm. That that something bigger than you is doing this through you. Mm-hmm. And I have that experience in writing. And, you know, I'm not saying I'm the best author in the world, some better, some worse. But I do have this experience in my books of them coming through me. Mm -hmm. And my job is to let them come through me, not to, not to like try to, you know, force them into being something that they don't want to be. Let them be what they want to be. So there is Mm -hmm. a sense of, And it's a wonderful experience when you have the sense of, wow, I didn't even do that. I just showed up. My motto as a writer is suit up and show up. My agreement with myself is that I come to sit right here at my desk every day. And if I don't want to write, I don't have to. Now, I almost never don't want to write. I almost always do. (laughs) So I call that suit up and show up. And i suit up and show up every day and sometimes it's a it's a struggle and sometimes there's a sense of i'll go home to my friend susie whom i live with and say susie i don't know i have no idea where that came from Mm. that did not come from me and it's Mm. it's pretty exciting and it it happens of its own accord from time to time and often enough to keep me working right (laughs) like whoa okay that's cool. I want to stay in relationship with whatever that power is. Yeah. It's not my point. power. My power is surrender. Yeah. So in the story I tell about Jonathan and Jonathan Daniels and Ruby Sales, I I went to Episcopal Divinity School when I was a young man. <clears throat> I don't know, 40 years ago. After I graduated from Amherst, I went to Episcopal Divinity School because I thought I wanted to be an Ep- Episcopal priest. Um that didn't work out, but for a number of reasons. And I'm I'm very happy the way things did work out, by the way. Uh, um, it turns out John Daniels was a, a guy who had been there at Episcopal Divinity School in Cambridge, Massachusetts, just a few years before I had. And he was a very white-bred kid from New Hampshire whose father was a doctor and well loved in the town. And but he was a devout dude, he he was going to be an Episcopal priest and he went to EDS and it was just at the time that Martin Luther King Jr. was calling for religious so priests and nuns and religious people to come down and get involved. It was after that first attempt to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge when John Lewis got walloped. uh, The first march to Montgomery I believe it was. And after that disaster, Martin Luther King, Jr. called on American religious people and spiritual people to come south and get involved. And Jonathan was at seminary. And he thought, well, what am I doing here studying these ancient texts when there's a crisis in the world? And that crisis called to him. And... um, he responded. He left seminary with his best friend there. They got in her little red Volkswagen Beetle, drove to Alabama, and became deeply involved in the civil rights struggle. In the it, As a result, he was shot by um, a southern white man who was a racist and who shot and killed him he, and wounded several other people. And at the time that he was shot, he was with uh, a friend and cohort, uh, a friend and, and colleague named Ruby Sales, a young black woman, 17 year old, wonderful young black woman who was also very much engaged in the struggle. Um, and she picked up the mantle. She was, she was the original target of this white man with a gun. He was trying to shoot her. And John Daniels stepped in front of the bullet, took the bullet, died, became a martyr, like one of the few martyrs in the American Episcopal Church, actually. Um, And Ruby Sales went on to become a lifelong activist. And this is one of the most beautiful, powerful women I've ever interacted with. She's still at it down in Alabama with her own organization, which looks particularly um at uh at certain aspects of of racism in america um so these are both again people who were led by the spirit and whose lives made enormous change the The change that they made in Lowndes County, Alabama, which back then was uh a focus of a lot of civil rights action because there was so much racism there um that county is so different now and i have a new friend in alabama who tells me just the profound way in which things have changed and it was a result of people like john and and i feel close to john since we sat in the same pews and studied with the same teachers and so forth and and ruby um who is the last person to that i profile in the book and is is still alive so we start with gandhi and we move through um all the people that we've talked about and others all the way to, to present day in, in ruby's uh beautiful work down south
0: yeah. well <clears throat> i think listeners probably already have this uh understanding but it's an amazing book it's an amazing book highly recommended as we come to the end of our time together in closing, what what words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to leave with our listeners? Here's what
1: I think I'd want to say, Laurel. The world is, you know, recently Bill Clinton sent a letter to the Clinton Foundation. He said the world's on fire and it is in so many ways. People, however, are overwhelmed by that, the extent to which that's true. So I want to let people know, you don't have to get overwhelmed by it. Just find out what your calling is. What are your special gifts and talents and resources? And how might you bring those to bear in your own world? In, in your part of Indra's web, right? You're the soul at the, at the confluence of those two threads, your little world. How can you make it better? How can you bring your dharma to bear on the suffering? in such a way that it fulfills your own personal um, desire to be everything you can be and also contributes to the common good mm-hmm. because we live in a very narcissistic culture in which we get very much all about ourselves and krishna basically says you cannot have a fully fulfilled life unless you're also contributing to the common good
0: i mm-hmm.
1: mean um, that's a central premise of this book So I think that's what I what I'd say, Laurel. All right. Yeah.
0: You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. My guest today has been Stephen Cope, bestselling author of the book we've been discussing today, The Dharma in Difficult Times. Again, you can find out more about Stephen at his website, StephenCope.com, S-T-E-P-H-E-N Cope.com. A link to his websites will also be posted on our website, TheYogaHour.com. Thank you so much, Stephen, for joining me today on The Yoga Hour. I've really enjoyed our conversation.
1: My pleasure, Laurel. Thank you. And thanks, Christine, for being our overseer there.
0: We hope uh, listeners will join us for the many online programs offered by the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, which currently include daily online meditation in the morning at six thirty, from six thirty to seven thirty a.m., in the afternoon at four p.m., and Monday evenings at seven thirty p.m. All those are Pacific time. We also offer Sunday Satsang. Satsang is a gathering of truth seekers that occurs at ten a.m. each week. Again, all those times are Pacific times. Um, There is a retreat, actually, for those listening on uh, today, November 10th. Uh, It starts today, not too late to sign up. You can find out more about it. It's Living the Eternal Way Meditation and Spiritual Retreat, offered both online and in person at the San Jose Center, San Jose, California. Um, And this is led by Yogacharya O'Brien. Again, goes today, November 10th through the 12th, a few weeks, Saturday, November 26th. Reverend Shankari Kenyon is offering a beautiful Advent meditation retreat day. Hard for me to believe. It's almost Advent time. Wow. And that's going to be uh, Saturday, November 26th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Um, it's on site at uh, the San Jose uh, Center. Um, again, on uh, Monday, November 28th from 7 to 8.30 p.m., Swamini Swatya. Svatma Vidyananda is offering Overcoming Self-Sabotage for Spiritual Growth, both on-site at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment and also globally online. You can find out more about these classes and others at the website for Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, csecenter.org. Next time on the Yoga Hour, I will be joined by Acharya Sundari Jensen, a senior Kriya Yoga teacher at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. We will will be discussing Samkhya philosophy, one of the six classical schools of Indian philosophy that adds an interesting perspective to yoga. Acharya Jensen has an on-demand course on this topic, Change Your Mind, Change Your Life, an introduction to Samkhya philosophy. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember, subscribe to the show. If you're enjoying it, share it with a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers Ann Hayes, Mickey Coronado, and Christine Sote. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing And wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now.